From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast here at ClassicRock981.com and LondonNewsToday.ca. Of course, the Craig Needles Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Clearview Auto Glass, and we appreciate their help with that. Uh, extra special Wednesday episode this week. It's a big news week in the city of London. So I wanted to make sure that we had lots of coverage of what was going on this week in regards to hubs and the conversations that have been had at London City Hall. So who better to have this conversation with than both the mayor of London, Josh Morgan, and the deputy mayor, Sean Lewis. Thank you both for doing this with me today. We appreciate it. Always happy to make time for you, Craig. Thank you. Yeah, my, ple- my pleasure, Craig. Uh, so I, I first want to talk about... The, the meeting itself, and, and we can get into sort of some of the, the, the concerns that were, that were expressed at that meeting, but uh, there will be hubs. The, the proposals that were brought to City Hall via those RFPs from Youth Opportunities Unlimited, from Canadian Mental Health Association, and from, uh, and from Adelosa are, are going to go ahead. Uh, Josh, your feelings on the fact that, yes, this is happening and, 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 and we are moving forward here still needs a full council approval, but I, I feel as though it's pretty clear we're going to get that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with the way things are going. Like, l- listen, we, we started this, um, you know, earlier this year and to, to be at the point now where we're actually able to open spaces that aligns with, you know, the, the work that the community has done uh, and get people actually off the streets and indoors with the supports they need. Uh, is is going to start to start this transformative system in our city. And um, this is something that others have been looking at. This is something that we've been working towards. And so to have committee support and now it go to council, you know, we're on the cusp here of actually implementing this. And for, for everybody, everybody who's had some anxiety or nervousness or questions about it, we're about to show what we can do. We're going to measure it. We're going to monitor it. We're going to help people. And we're going to make sure it has the impacts uh, that we want it to have. And we're going to adjust along the way if we need to. But you don't, you know, learn by delaying, you learn by doing. And that's, this is the point that we're at in this plan now. I think there's even a, a, a another piece of good news in this that needs to be emphasized. And that is the fact that when council endorsed this plan, you know, and, and we heard a lot of, well, I'm not sure if there's enough beds or not. But our endorsed plan only had enough operating dollars for two hubs. This actually came in, they actually came in on average under budget for operating dollars, which allows us to actually move ahead with standing up all three without any additional funding committed by the province. So, I mean, I think that's a real testament to the lead agencies that are involved here. Uh, And and you mentioned them, Craig, YOU, an incredible track record in this community of supporting youth at risk uh, at LOSA, who obviously is you know, the lead agency, uh, along with the Amarant Friendship Center and Noki Quay and, and uh, their partners in SOHAC as well, in terms of supporting Indigenous residents in this community. Uh, and then the Canadian Mental Health Association, Thames Valley. I mean, we, we all recognize mental health is a big part of why we need these hubs. So who better than the Canadian Mental Health Association to be leading uh, on that front? So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we have uh, the opportunity to start seeing some changes happening on our streets, in our community, within the next six to nine months as these get stood up and, and are operating. And, and that, at the end of the day, is the test that these are going to be measured by, is 
do we see a difference in the community? And that's, I think, what a lot of people want to know is when will we see a difference or will we see a difference? And and what I keep saying is I, I have a belief that this is as good a plan as we're gonna we're gonna come up with, and I'm glad that we have it. However, I, I don't think anyone can sit here and say for certain we know this is all going to work out properly, and we know this is going to solve problems X, Y, and Z. I, I, I we don't know that, but we can't not try to solve those problems for the sake of not knowing whether we can in this particular way, because otherwise we will do nothing forever. So let's do something. Well, what we yeah. do know is is what we're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. We just throwing more money at the same old uh, paths on this problem are not going to get things done. Uh, you know, we have put more money into services along the way, put more beds out there, and it's not going to make a difference unless we try something a little different. I think both the mayor and I and other members of council too have said all along, hey, there's going to be mistakes in this plan. There's going to be course corrections and it may even fail. We may even have to pull the plug on it, but it's about trying. Yeah. And, you know, Craig, one of the things that I think everybody needs to realize is this is a very specific plan for a specific population in our city. When you look at the other things that we're doing to try to tackle affordability and homelessness generally, you saw the tremendous announcement that we had with the Housing Accelerator Fund, first first city in the entire country to get that money, uh, praised by the government and being used now as an example for other cities. That money is going to help us drive affordability, drive units, uh, create more um, more places for people to live than we otherwise would have over the next uh, uh, three years by over 20%, 23% actually. We're, we're trying to drive affordability, but we also have to recognize that we we need a part of our strategy to deal with those who have the highest needs on our street, those who consume the highest amount of services, whether it's emergency room, land ambulance, mental health resources, contacts with police. We need to have a plan for those people who are high acuity. And that's what this plan is. And, and for all those who are saying out there, well, you know, this isn't going to work. We need something. Else. What is the alternative? And who are you going to get to design it? Because pretty much everybody with any expertise was at the table on this hospitals, frontline office, service workers, you know, the development community, the business community, the city, you know, the, the Ontario health team, the agencies in the healthcare sector, they're all here and they're all at the table and they're all willing to bring resources and expertise. So if you don't want to do this, who are you going to get to design the alternative? Because everybody is here. Everybody is getting behind this who has any sort of expertise on designing a system like this. One of the criticisms of the plan is that those who are high acuity are the only ones being helped here. And hey, we haven't gotten enough beds here to help everyone, which is is true. We don't. Now, I don't think there's ever going to be a plan where we had 2,000 beds overnight. But those who are high acuity are getting help. And those who are sort of the low acuity folks who are looking for housing, th- th- their situations, I don't think, are going to necessarily change entirely in the short term here. So what are we saying to those people right now? Let's talk well, about first- the announcement. You just did like, and sorry, Sean, to cut you off, yep. but like, no I've, jump been, in. I've been standing in front of buildings for the last little while, whether it's Pond Mills, whether it's Sylvan Street, about announcements that are about affordability, about driving units down. You know, those are units to either stop people from falling into homelessness or pull them out of it because they simply just can't meet the financial thresholds to get a, a house in, or a home in the city. So like those, that work does not stop. Council's roadmap to 3000, we've made significant adjustments to that to start to do city-led builds. One of which, a brand new one, came before council last night out in Hyde Park. We're using our land 
We're partnering with the federal government. We're partnering with agencies and we're creating units that are affordable. And that is part of the plan to help the 2000 homeless and anybody on the verge of falling into homelessness. This is very specific to those high needs individuals who we need to get beds for. And I, and I, I keep hearing people say there's only 44 beds. There's only going to be 73 in, in, in the, in the spring, you know, like think about a hotel, like people don't just use a bed and it helps one person. People flow through those facilities. People will flow through these. And if you look at what YOU is projecting, yeah, they may only have 15 beds, but they think they can help upwards of 60 people per year. People are going to move through these spaces. And over time, we're going to help more and more and more of those high acuity individuals. So getting the beds up and running allows people to start flowing through them, allows people to start coming off the street and indoors and then flowing through into supportive housing. Yeah, when we started talking about this plan at, at first, it was up to 15 hubs. I will be honest, I don't think we will ever need to go to 15 hubs I agree because that. of that throughput, uh, because of the ability. And especially when you look at an organization like YOU, who already has uh, a 30-bed shelter on Clark Road, who already has apartment uh, building uh, spaces for youth in the downtown core at their cornerstone building. And of course, Jones Place, which is mm -hmm. under construction right now, which is going to create more units. They've got a built-in flow through already in their system. Uh, and as yeah, these yeah. other projects are happening, like Hyde Park, 1958 Duluth in Ward 2, uh, again, a mixed development. Uh, there's going to be some affordable. There's probably going to be some RGI. Uh, it's going to be a mix. And that's what we're looking at. And, and I see these coming every time we have a planning committee. There is housing stock being built. We also have 18,000 uh, housing units approved in this city. Uh, where we really need to start uh, moving is we need the province to give us some tools to actually get shovels in the ground. And we've heard some provincial representatives uh, banding about the idea recently of use it or lose it on zoning. Uh, that would be very helpful for us to have that mechanism. Uh, but when we talk about this plan, and the whole community response, it's a whole community response on building the housing units too. And, and I, I also think it's important to recognize when we say there are 2,000 homeless folks uh, in London right now, those are not all people sleeping in doorways at night. Um, some are precariously housed, some are couch surfing, uh, but uh, they are technically homeless. But it doesn't mean that they're sleeping in a, in a camp down by the river or they're sleeping in a doorway down on Dundas Place. There, that is where we're talking about really the 600 high acuity. Are, those are the folks who are in the encampments, who are in the doorways, and the folks who need the highest level of help. Yeah, and Sean, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but when you talked about YOU, I, I really wanted to jump in because everybody who's saying the RFP may not be have been exactly as we pitched it. Well, look at why what YOU did. I don't do, I don't hear anybody criticizing YOU for saying not only are we going to bid on this hub, maybe the spaces are a little lower than what you traditionally, but we're going to utilize the full suite of all of our resources and assets to flow people through. They're bringing something to this conversation bigger than I think we could have anticipated when we put out the RFP, which makes their proposal particularly interesting to me because you got an organization with expertise who has experience in multiple spaces uh, that can help with this challenge and saying, we're not just going to bid on this piece. We're going to leverage our assets and our organization come to the table and try to create something really dynamic and new and build on even the concept that we had in the RFP. Like to me, that is someone coming to the table with real solutions and 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 real opportunities for us to create the change we want to create in our city. Well, and we look at Atlosa. Uh, 
who are going to be building on the prior winter response that we had at the Parkwood Hospital lands to begin with uh, a couple of years back. And uh, Councillor Lehman and I went and visited. Um, the program was very successful. It was very well run. Uh, and participants in it actually did move on to connect with family, to move on to more stable housing. Now, not all of them, but there was a very high success rate there uh, for their population. And when you think about the fact that 30% of uh, those 2,000 people uh, who are considered homeless in London right now, 30% of those are Indigenous, a much bigger percentage than the Indigenous population in the overall uh, general public population. So when they've already proven that they can run this site at Parkwood Hospital uh, very well, and now they want to move from doing something that's a seasonal winter response to a permanent ongoing uh, way of flowing through Indigenous folks and, and connecting them to the supports that they need to stabilize, uh, to lower their acuity and, and to move on to uh, more permanent housing options in the future. I mean, these are organizations who are building on proven track records, uh, as is CMHA. Um, but this is where I think we really, really are lucky in London that we've had three really credible organizations. This, is, this isn't a fly-by-night startup. These are organizations with proven track records. And yeah, the, the um, RFPs came back as irregular because they didn't meet everything perfectly. Uh, but here's the alternative. Do nothing. Uh, because there is no other plan. Let's be clear, for all the people on social media, uh, for all the um, members of council who were opposed and talked about, uh, we need to do something different, we need another plan. There is no other plan. Th th they've had nine months. Where has a proposal come forward from a member of council to say, let's try this instead? There's not been one motion to do that. So to to have members of the public, to have members of council saying, well, it's not enough. I think we should try something different. What the hell are you going to try different? You've had nine months to bring it forward, and we've seen nothing. So to me, it, this is what it comes down to at the end of the day. We either act now, or you support the status quo. And acting now is important. And Councillor Trosso brought this up at the meeting, and I, and I very much agree with him when he said it. Um, not acting now and delaying this plan is going to cost people their lives. And, and that's the thing is if we get into a situation where it gets to winter response time and we don't have that Adelosa hub that you were just talking about, Sean, and we don't have these options for people, th there will be extra people who die this winter because of that. Like there, there, there's just no other way to say it. And, I, uh, and I'm not saying it to be mean. I'm not saying it to be coarse. I'm not saying it to be dramatic. It's just true. Even if and, that- And hundreds of people have died over the past few years because we don't have a plan. Hundreds. And, but even if somebody wanted to be cold and callous, Craig, and said, well, they are, are there um, through choices of their own, whether, whether you agree with that or not, even if somebody wanted to take that approach, what else does it send a message to? It sends a message to our donor and, and the Fund for Change people who are trying to raise the matching funds for the additional uh, 5 million contribution. Mm -hmm. uh, it also sends a message, and Councillor Trussow said this, and Councillor Trussow and I may not always agree, uh, but we were certainly in full agreement on this point. What message does it send to the senior levels of government who we are asking at the provincial level for the other operating dollars who we've just from the federal level received 74 million in housing dollars. So what does it say to our funding partners? Because right now, none of this is being done through a property tax increase. It's not coming on the backs of homeowners on their property taxes. 
And you can say there's only one taxpayer. That's fine. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I suppose in a way that's true. But income tax, uh, GST collected at the cash register, that at least is based on somebody's ability to pay. Property taxes don't consider your income. They're regressive. They're the least fair form of tax. And so we're not raising your property taxes to do this. But boy, if we're going to do nothing, we can expect the senior levels of government and we can expect those who are being asked to donate to, to come up with matching funds. They're not going to do anything. either. Yeah. And that's the that's the situation we find ourselves in. I, I know and, and, and I want to ask you about this, Josh. There, there was a lot of pushback in the northwest, the area surrounding the hub that will be in the spring at 705 Fanshawe Park Road. I know that that's an area you represented for eight years as a counselor. You live in that area. You had a Twitter thread about it. And I wanted to ask you about it. I, I was disappointed by some of the some of the conversations you saw from there. I was disappointed by some of the letters that were that were put on the agenda there. Uh, we don't need to get into it again, but uh, I, I don't think that if you own Tim Hortons 1.8 kilometers away from one of these hubs, that means that the hub is a bad idea. Uh, Josh, tell me about your, your your thread and sort of crafting it and, and, and your response to what the concerns were that came from that community. Well, my, my thread was honest. Um, I, you know, I, I happen to be mayor of the city. I, I may have been the ward counselor for eight years, but I, I've, I've lived up there with my family for a long period of time. And I've seen this community time and time again be the most generous, compassionate community that, that, that I've ever lived in. Uh, early in my first term, a giant fire at Limberlost. We had so many people offering to help though, those those individuals. We had to have them stop bringing in donations because we didn't store them all, right, to help people restore their lives. When when family was murdered, which, I mean, you're covering the trial right now in that community, look look at the outpouring of support. Now, that, that was across the city and nationally, but I can tell you within the community, you know, neighbors and, 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 and you know, people who knew the family, who know the friends, who know those impacted, just an outpouring of support. Signs are going up on people's lawns all over the place. And, and I cannot, I cannot see how 12 women, some of which who may have their children, who have complex high needs, getting those needs serviced in a hub location, moving into supportive housing, being a part of our community, isn't yet another opportunity to show again how compassionate and how helpful we can be like as a community. So for me, my thread was honest. It's, it's how I feel as, as, as a resident, right? Maybe even more so than how I feel as mayor about you know how I wanna be as a member of the community, how I want my kids to see me be as a member of the community. And I think there were a lot of comments based on, I think fear and fear leads to assumptions. And that leads to people saying things that maybe they just actually don't believe in their heart, um, but are based in their own assumptions rooted in fear and the unknown. And I think, you know, we're going to do our best to really communicate uh, as much as we can um, what is actually happening. Uh, there is going to be a zoning process up there so that it, that's, you know, proved in principle, it has to go through a zoning process. And I hope that that is an opportunity to have some runway to really engage with individuals in that community to say, you know, we can do one of two things. We can be afraid and we can make assumptions or we can decide to be helpful and we can make this the best it possibly could be by leaning into it. And if there are issues or there are challenges, let's talk about them and then let's mitigate them and fix them. That's built right into the hub's plan. The idea that the surrounding community will get to talk about how this is impacting them if it is. And then we get to make changes to mitigate those impacts or eliminate them altogether. So 
there, there are opportunities built into the hubs plan for that compassion and for that engagement. Um, but I, I just saw a lot of people who, you know, I think wrote some comments based on fear and, and assumptions. Uh, well, and, and to carry on on that, I think there's been some deliberate misinformation and fear mongering going on out there uh, via social media. And that's not helpful. It's it's deliberately misrepresenting what is what is happening here. And uh, I'll tell you, the result of of that kind of reaction uh, that we had to um, the one in Ward 7, uh, frankly, further divides the community, because I'll tell you the reaction of a lot of people in my ward and uh, in I know in Councillor McAllister's ward, uh, because to, to quote him uh, in his comments during debate, uh, the reaction of a lot of folks in the East is it's about bloody time. And that's because we have been doing our part. And I said this, uh, ANOVA, which slightly different demographic in terms of the women who stay at ANOVA, but a women's uh, uh, transitional shelter that has been there where women stay for up to 90 days. Uh, it's been there since long before I was elected. And in the five years I've been elected, zero complaints because Jesse Roger and her team run a good operation that does not have a negative impact on the neighborhood. Uh, we've got the YOU Youth Shelter up on Clark Road. We've got several hundred units of RGI housing uh, by either London Housing or by other third-party uh, rent-geared income housing providers in my work. Um, there is a very real sense uh, from a part of London um, that this nimbyism uh, reaction, this fear-mongering reaction uh, in the Northwest um, is just fine with them because they think it is time uh, that all parts of the city, and Councillor Ferreira said this wonderfully uh, during debate, all parts of the city have to own a piece of this solution. Um, and, and I think that that's a really key reason why these, these need to be separated. You know, when we had the winter response at Fanshawe Golf, uh, again, Councillor Lane that I visited folks there, the residents who stayed there for, for those couple of months were so happy to be out of the downtown. And remember, that was criticized. At yep. first. Oh, we're taking them away from their community yep. supports, blah, blah, blah. I talked about but this with residents... Melissa Sheehan yesterday. And, and she said the yeah. same thing. People that, you know, people in the, the community of those who have, have been uh, un, uh, underhoused, if we want to call it that, uh, they were thrilled to see it go away from the core. Yeah, because to break the cycle, sometimes you need to change the environment as well. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we're, we're not doing this critical mass of, you know, creating a building with 200 beds in it. We've, th that's been tried before. It doesn't work. So in this case, by spreading them out and by putting them in all parts of the city, and we had people saying, oh, there's encampments in Medway Valley already. Who do you think the hubs are for? Yeah. People who are in those encampments in Medway Valley. So if you don't want them staying in Medway Valley, having the Lighthouse Inn functioning as a transitional uh, housing space for women, that's a good thing because it provides a path out of tents in Medway Valley and into more permanent housing. Yeah, Sean, Sean talked about the, the misinformation um, that's out there before. I didn't comment on that, but I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've seen some of that too. And it's it's very disappointing. I, I'll say in one community page that I, I'm a member of, uh, they, they, they set up um, an event, a Facebook event, uh, to come to the council meeting to, to express concerns. And the image they used for that event was of an encampment like, and not a very nice looking one, something that is absolutely nothing to do with what an integrated hub would look like at all. It, it's just, in fact, it's working against the existence of those encampments. 
Exactly. If any, if exactly. Any, yeah. That's the image. That's yeah. the image picked for the event to drive people into fear, to get them to show up angry, and to make comments that maybe are are counter to what you know they actually feel in their heart. Uh, I, I do want to ask about one thing. And I talked about this with Melissa on the podcast yesterday, and I wanted to ask the both of you about it. And she said, look, I don't think anyone should be concerned about the women who are staying at this hub being a problem in that community. And I, and I agree with that entirely. What she did note, though, is, hey, there might be people that try to go find those women who are staying there that could hypothetically be a problem. And, and, and I, I know that London police have been part of this. So have you, uh, either of you had conversation with Chief Trong about sort of what the policing would look like surrounding that hub, not necessarily policing of the people who are staying there, but perhaps people who are uh, trying to do bad things surrounding that hub, be it sell drugs, be it violence or whatever it happens to be. Has that been part of a conversation you've had with the chief of police or, or anyone with London police? I can go first. Well, uh, security's built in, but I'll let Josh talk because he's talking to the chief more than me. Like I said, I can go first in, right? If you want to, you can go first, Sean. Well, I was just going to say security at, at all the hub sites is built into the plan. 24-7 security. And that's part of the budget. 24-7 yeah. staffing. And that's part of the budget. Yeah. And, and and honestly, part of the, the, the hub's plan is that the, it's, there's, no, it's not, there's not no rules in the transitional beds, right? The type of thing that we're talking about up on Fanshawe. There, there is a guest policy. There, there are protections built in because guess what? If we want people to be successful, um, you know, th- th- there, are, there are rules that are going to have to be followed. There, are, you can't just have people showing up and and in using that space. It is, it is meant to be a safe space for people to get the help they need to move to the next step uh, when they're ready. And it's a flow through. So this is all integrated into the hub's plan. And anybody who's not re- who's not um, read the hub's implementation plan. You know, I encourage them to do so. So you can see all of the things that are built in that the leads are responsible for doing, including the security uh, of the residents, including the management of the property, both indoors and outdoors, indoors and outdoors, uh, and engagement with the community and many other things. So absolutely. And I'll say the city manager, for sure, absolutely, as as part of this process has spoken to the chief of police, as have I. The chief are full, the, the police are fully integrated in yep. in the hubs. They've been part of this from the very beginning. Yep. Exactly. So they know exactly what we're doing and and they know the supports that they need to give to to make sure it's successful. Now, you know, that may not be necessary in every place, but having them aware and ready uh and available is is important, right? So Well, and if you're concerned about police response times, this is what I would say to people on that. 11,500 hours of policing went into responding to mental health calls around uh, homelessness individuals last year. 11,500. If you really want the police to be able to respond faster to specific situations, these hubs take pressure off the police so they can respond faster. Let me give you an example of exactly that, because uh, Mayor Preston and I in St. Thomas talk all the time. And one of the things we talked about recently was uh, they, through an Indowell program, pulled the 15 neediest people off of their street and in a highly, like a, a highly expensive, costly program that is four years of programming off the street. Before people went into that program, those those 15 people had 800 contacts with police in one year. After they went into the program, they had 40. Like. And in London, the average mental health related call, which Sean was talking about, is about 5.4 hours of officer time. So, and that's a small example in St. Thomas. So, and that's 15, 15 people, right? So even if you think we don't, I mean, we don't have as many beds as you'd like in London, I can tell you 
pulling people off the streets into these spaces will be dramatic in the way that it saves resources over time as we flow people through and we get them out of those contacts with police and emergency rooms and land ambulance and mental health supports and impacts on businesses. This is why we focus on this population because they need help and they're consuming a lot of resources in our community. And justice system too. That's another one. So yeah, there's uh, there, there there's a lot of uh, taking one person off the street I, I can't sit here and say exactly how much that's worth. It depends on the person and things along those lines. But if you factor in emergency room visits, if you factor in uh, justice system, if that's uh, if that's part of it, if you factor in sort of medical costs and things along those lines, it, it, it's a huge savings. And I wanted to ask you about the dollars per bed because I know a lot of people are are upset about that. But that that to me is the cost of doing business. If we want to have true real life wraparound services and not just say, oh, okay, here's a place to sleep for the night and then you're on your own. Like it, it's got to be something where there's real life staffing there, right? Uh, absolutely. And and I said this during debate and, you know, I'll reiterate it for listeners. Uh, the folks who we are talking about here consumed 6,000 emergency room visits last year. An emergency room bed costs half a million dollars a year to operate. Now, there's throughput there, too. So it's not just one person that that half a million dollars, just like with the hubs where they will be throughput. Um, but that's that means the hub beds are one fifth the price of an emergency room bed. They're actually slightly less uh, than the cost of a long-term care bed, which runs about $130,000 a year. Um, so you, you can't compare it to shelter beds, which that's what they are, a bed, mm-hmm. a place to lay your head and sleep, uh, maybe a breakfast in the morning or a dinner at night, but there's not, the wraparound services aren't there. Um, this, I, I visited uh, the men's mission a week ago. Um, and I applaud all the work they're doing there, but that is not twenty four seven wraparound no. supports. Um, and and Salvation Army help. is the same thing. Salvation Army yep. has a lot of staffers doing the best they can with what they got, but what they got isn't a whole lot. Yeah, I, well, I mean, at Men's Mission ratio is thirty three to one uh, for a, a resident versus their caseworker. So one caseworker is handling thirty three people at any given time. In the hubs, the ratio is more like five to one. Um, and so when you start to do that math, you can see. There's a reason why the cost is high, because this, we're not buying a bed. We're buying a suite of services wrapped around a bed. Uh, yeah, and what are those services, Sean? Primary health care services, mental health and addiction services, justice services, housing services, um, career-based services, all integrated in a hub. So you got to think, when you're providing this suite of services, including primary health care, into a hub, are you going to compare it to a shelter? Are you going to start to compare it to a long-term care bed or an emergency room bed? Like the, the, the math on this is a lot easier when you understand the services that are going in there. And, and even on the math, the council endorsed hubs implementation plan said the estimated operating cost of each hub is going to be about 2.7 million. The estimated capital cost for each hub about 2 million. So where did we land on the operating with these three together on average? Just under 2.7 million, about where the operating was expected to be. The average capital cost was actually only about 1.6 million. And again, Sean identified that we're not even using, you know, municipal sources of financing for this. We're drawing on all of the other work that we've done to, to cobble together money. So yes, there is a cost. Yes, that cost is not cheap because we're providing this full suite of services to people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what people ignore is all of the 
pressure that is freed up on all of these other very costly services in our city when we start to help people. And so you got to think to start to offset that. And the other thing too, is you're creating spaces that have flow through. So you get to relieve that pressure each and every time you have someone go through this bed and into supportive housing. And that's why, again, I keep looking at the YOU proposal, which, you know, to me, they're thinking about this in a phenomenal way. How can we leverage our resources to get as much flow through as possible to help people off the street who are consuming resources in to get the supports they need and then into, into supportive housing and or whatever housing they can they can do and then get more people in that space and keep doing it again and again. And so, you know, you talk about the 600, you know, high acuity individuals we have in the city. Well, you know, 73 beds by the spring. Let's say let's say person stays there a year, which is unlikely because you know some people are predicting a, a, a you know fairly decent flow through. Seventy three people year one, seventy three people year two, seventy three people year three. All of a sudden, we're in the hundreds of people off the street, hundreds of people consuming less resources. Think about the St. Thomas example. Now go to hundreds of people. This starts to pay off once you get the beds open and we start flowing people through them. Yeah, and I know that there's going to be um, people that want to see sort of the, the the proof in the pudding here, and I suspect that's what we're going to have to see in the next uh, uh, in in the months to come, because we're not going to know until we know. And if we have to make an adjustment, then we uh, then we have to make an adjustment. Uh, last thing I want to uh, ask you about before we wrap up. Well, two more things I want to ask you about before we wrap right, up. Can I, can I just say one thing? Absolutely. On what you said. You're absolutely right. So how do we know if we need to make an adjustment built in to the hub's plan? is the monitoring, the tracking, the metrics collection, and the measurement of is this being effective so that it can be fed back in to make the changes we need to make. This isn't just opening some beds and hoping it works. This is a measurement and tracking regime partnering with experts in our city through the university and research hospitals that we have to track and measure this and make sure we're getting the outcomes that we expect from the plan. The other thing I wanted to ask about was when the next hubs might come online. And obviously, we're just still finishing <laughs> finishing up these ones. But the the plan was for 15, or at least that was talked about. I, I agree with, with the both of you saying I don't think that we're going to need 15. But we're going to need more than what we've got now. So when might we start taking bids on the next hubs is something I'd like to ask you. So well, we, I think... We put, yeah, go ahead, Sean. I, I was going to say, I think we've, you know, we put out an RFP uh, for five uh we had four applicants uh, three were recommended um you know the one that wasn't recommended certainly uh has an opportunity to adjust and, and come back uh to us again um but i, I personally like i, I do want to see some data before we start talking about hubs six through ten um our hubs four and five still doable well that is going to depend largely on whether or not we can get the operating dollars from the senior levels of government um, we are not in a, in a position uh, to start funding that from municipal property taxes. Uh, I, you know, I hate to say it, folks, but brace for um, a, a higher number in the budget than you've seen in a couple of years, uh, given all of the pressures that are on the city. So we need that funding from the, the senior levels of government and the province in particular, if we're going to advance hubs four and five. And then I think we we wait and see what the data shows us uh, from the first five before we move on to six through 10. Yeah. And, and one of the, the items in the, the, I mean, we, everybody covers the high end things we passed, but one of the, one of the parts of the motion was directing civic administration to continue to work with the community on hubs implementation 
and establish additional opportunities for future procurement of additional spaces. In other words, there were four people who bid on these hubs. One was not accepted, three were. Uh, there were others who may have wanted to bid, but just weren't quite there yet with the runway that they had um, based on whatever their organizational needs were or their capacity to submit the, the bids. So there, there is an opportunity for people to continue to uh, to want to engage with us if they're looking to try to, uh, to to make those pitches. Now, we have to do that through the proper procurement policies, which we will do the city, but we've provided that direction to staff to say, you have our permission to continue those conversations, whatever they may be. And by the way, that includes the current hub providers. Uh, you, you talked about YOU being a little under, but the way it's worded, it does allow YOU to come back to us in the future and say, we're able to add five more beds to this process. Um, and here's how we would propose to do it and, and bring that forward as well. So um, there is flexibility built into how we proceed from here. The last thing that I wanted to ask you both about uh, was something that, uh, you know, we've seen some media coverage on this and there's been social media conversation about uh, pictures posted by Councillor Stevenson of people in the community who are experiencing homelessness. And I talked to Melissa Sheen about this yesterday. And I, I, I keep mentioning that conversation, but the stuff keeps linking up here. And, and she said, look, I, I know some of those people. These are good people. They don't deserve to be kind of put on blast like that. Um, what were the reaction that both of you had to seeing that? Because I know that there's a lot of people within the city that uh, uh, were concerned to see that type of uh, that type of post from a city councillor. Well, uh, I would say, first of all, you don't post photos of anyone on social media without their consent. Um, that's just being a decent human being. Um, but we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Uh, than even the average uh, member of the public when it comes to our social media interactions. Um, doesn't, doesn't mean we can't be uh, opinionated, doesn't mean we can't uh, question some things, but it does require us to think a little bit about the things we post uh, and posting pictures of people, vulnerable individuals, faces visible, um, making them identifiable, uh, it is a real serious concern. Um, and I know I've seen uh, through my inbox a number of uh, submissions uh, that all of council has been copied on uh, to the integrity commissioner calling this into practice. And so I, we're, I'm sure going to have to uh, at some point deal with an integrity commissioner report on this. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Sean. Um, you, the the weight that you carry as an elected official in the words that you use um, is magnified in the community. And, and people have to be really careful and very responsible with what they do. And, and I completely agree. Posting photos, uh, identifiable photos of individuals without their permission who are marginalized in our community is, is, is not, is not reflective of, of what you should be doing as, as a counselor. And and, and I've been copied on the same complaints. And there's a process for that. The integrity commissioner does their thing, ensures that we're held to our, our collective code of conduct that we've all agreed to uphold. And, and it's up to the integrity commissioner to do those investigations and return a report to council. So, you know, I couldn't possibly comment on, on that process. But I, I can say um, it's, it's just not something that I, I would encourage any counselor to do. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not reflective of... Um, of the way that we, we we should be using our social media and we have to be very careful very careful the way that our our voice carries in the community 
we also have to keep in mind our own council code of conduct. Uh, and, and there are some pieces in there um, that speak to uh, things like uh, undermining decided matters of council and decisions of council. It doesn't mean that you have to say, I agree with them. Uh, but uh, it, it's, I mean, it's fine for you to say, well, I didn't support it. I voted against it. Um, but it is a completely different thing to start posting information uh, that's contrary to the decision of council that's seeking to actively um, discredit things that were in reports councils received, those kind of things. So, um, you know, I, again, it's the integrity commissioner's job to sort out uh, whether or not there is a violation here. Uh, but uh, for me personally, you know, I would just I, I look at some of those things and I, I think that there is cause for concern. Yeah, and we saw this last term because um, uh, I can talk about an incident in the past. I'm not going to comment on any current integrity commissioner um, potential investigations because they do decide whether or not to investigate uh, when a complaint is made. The last term we saw Councillor Van Holst um, go through this process. You know, uh, he, um, he he said some things at a at a public meeting, and a complaint was uh, determined that he was undermining the the position and the decision of council and. That went all the way through to an integrity commissioner report back to council. And so, you know, there's a process. And ultimately, all this is about is we have a code of conduct that we've collectively said we're going to hold each other to and the community can hold us to about the way that we're going to behave, act and engage with each other as elected officials and as elected officials in the community. And so, you know, none of us, none of us are above above that code. Um, and that's what it's there for. Um, so people have a complaint to make. It's, there's a legitimate process for them to to pursue it. I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, both of you, thank you so much for this uh, for this full uh, conversation. I hope a lot of people hear it because uh, there's there's a lot of facts that they need to hear in this as far as what's going on with the hub plan. So thank you so much uh, for doing this, and we uh, we're glad you could help us. Now, if only the federal government would address C18 so we could share the link to this on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I will, uh, I'll be sending this over to Peter Fragascato's office so we can talk about it with him. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. And that's uh, the Deputy Mayor of London, Sean Lewis, and the Mayor of London, Josh Morgan, joining us here on the Craig Needles podcast, which, of course, you can find at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and the Craig Needles podcast is brought to you by our friends at Clearview Autoglass. With a bit of bad luck, your windshield took one for the team and you've got to get it replaced. The good luck is you've got Clearview Autoglass. Certified in OptiAIM Lane Departure Camera Calibration Service, Clearview Autoglass will replace your windshield quickly and safely to ensure the integrity of your vehicle. And they will submit your claim directly to your insurance company for you. Plus, they'll give you a $25 gift card. Don't just drive, enjoy the view with Clearview Autoglass. 540 Clark Road and clearviewautoglasslondon.ca. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.